Hey, go ahead, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 2. We're in week 9 of our series through James. We're finally hitting chapter 2. I was thinking about this week as I was, as I was uh, writing my notes and all this good stuff, uh, preparing for this sermon. Um, I, was just, I was thinking about the warehouse, and uh, it's, it's a neat place. I, lo- I love this warehouse, okay? It's a neat place. I don't know. I don't have anything more you know, profound than that. It's a neat place, but I don't know that we'd like call it a nice place in the strict sense of, of the words. Thank you for laughing at that, Kyle. He's like, yeah, you know, I've been in other churches before. Um, I mean, there are churches that have like things like, wait for it, guys, carpet and, uh, and padded chairs. I know, right? Um, that they have screens, right? So you wouldn't have to be like flipping through pages of your Bible right now. You have something to look at, even though I'd still kind of harass you about flipping through pages in your Bible. Um, there are rooms that have a lot less echo than this room, you know? Um, there, are, there are like church buildings that have level floors, right? I don't know if you've noticed that. When you walk through here, sometimes things are a little shaky, you know? Um, but what I love about it, what I hope for it, um, is that it's a place, it's a space that people feel welcomed to and welcomed in. You can just be somebody here, right? You can be somebody who dresses down and you like to keep it casual. You can be somebody who dresses up because that, that's your tradition. Um, man, you can be white collar, you can be blue collar, no collar, clerical collar, you know. Um, you can be somebody with some money, you can be somebody with not a lot of money. We don't want to make distinctions to the best of our ability here. We want people to feel welcome. We want all people to feel welcome. Now, that doesn't mean we approve or affirm patterns of sin or lifestyles contrary to the heart of Jesus Christ. That's not what that's saying when we say we want people, all people to feel welcome. What it means is that all sinners and all sufferers are welcome to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus with just a messy community of diverse people who love and serve one another in the mess. That's what we're saying. The worst thing that this could become, this warehouse, this church, the worst thing substance could become is a church where people didn't feel welcome because of money or lack of money or because of particular kinds of clothing um, or an image or this kind of ungodly exclusivity. Like if we became a church that showed favoritism to certain people groups, that would be wrong. That would be inconsistent with the gospel that we preach that tells us to love the Lord our God with our whole heart and our neighbors as ourselves. We'd be pushing pretty firmly against that. So here's our main point as we dive into James 2 this morning. And it's really simply this. It's that the church must not show partiality by withholding mercy toward those God has called to be fellow heirs of his kingdom. And what James is gonna tell us is that when we make distinctions based on things like image and money and clothing, what we're really doing at the end of the day is we are withholding mercy in favor of judgment. James is gonna be giving us, the church, a baseline by saying we have to be merciful. We have to be a merciful people because anything less than that is judgmental. 
So we're going to be merciful or we're going to be judgmental. Look what it says when we pick up in verse 2, verse 1. James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors or as sinners. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, verse 12, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word for us today. And so really we're just going to kind of go down into this really simple point here that James is making for us today, which is how do we love our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? And the first thing we're going to look at is verses one through four, which is, this is how, without distinction or exclusion, without distinction or exclusion, as you hold the faith in Jesus, James says, show no partiality. James dedicates 13 verses to warning these persecuted Jews that were scattered all over the region that he's writing to, to not withhold mercy to those entering their assemblies who were underprivileged or in a disadvantaged place economically. Now the temptation uh, these brothers and sisters faced was to give preferential treatment to those who were uh, you know, outwardly prosperous while being dismissive of those of a lower socio and economic status. This is what James is saying. He's saying, when you make those distinctions, he's saying you've become judges with evil thoughts. Another way to say evil thoughts would be evil reasoning. You're reasoning something inside of your mind that doesn't align with the mind of Christ is what he's saying. James is saying literally when you do this, you have appointed yourself to be godlike in your judgment. But ungodly, in that you're judging people by showing partiality. James is saying, your mind is not reasoning from the godly wisdom that comes from an inner transformation of the heart through faith. But it's reasoning with worldly wisdom that feeds on the passions of the flesh. The first thing Jesus leads with when he preaches, 
his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Of all the things, of all the intros, all the illustrations, all the jokes that he could have let off with, this is what he says. Blessed are what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus leads with a particular kind of spiritual quality that he is calling his people to cultivate and exhibit and extend in the church. It's impossible, James is saying here, to love our neighbor when we lead with this distinction and this exclusion. And when that happens, we're kind of like Luke 10, verse 25. We're kind of like this lawyer guy in Luke 10 who we are told he stood up to put Jesus to the test. And he said this, reading from Luke 10, 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. You got it. You nailed it. He said, do this and you will live. And then he says this, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus then goes on to share the parable of the good Samaritan to show who the neighbor was. And remember, who was the neighbor? At the end of it, he asks the lawyer, and who was the neighbor? And the neighbor begrudgingly says, you know, that guy, that Samaritan, except he doesn't say the name Samaritan. He says the one who showed what? Mercy. Jesus identifies so much with the lowly because he identifies himself as being gentle and lowly. And so that's why James is so, uh, he's, he's so eager to remind the churches that they cannot show distinction or exclusion if they're going to love their neighbors the way Jesus has instructed us to show our neighbors. It's a way that we're not being anything like Jesus, the life of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the mind of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So to love our neighbors, the kind of neighbors the world would designate having lesser than or lowly status, we must become poor in spirit in order to love them without distinction or exclusion because the scripture doesn't give, wait for it, listen, qualifiers on who your neighbors are. Do you get that? Like when it says love your neighbor, nowhere does Jesus say, and guys, just wait, I'll email you a list tomorrow kind of laying out who the neighbors are and who the neighbors aren't. It says, love your neighbor. There is no qualifiers on who our neighbors are. And neither did Jesus qualify you when he decided to love you and to pull you into himself. It was his love for you that qualified you. He drew you into himself with all of your stuff he drew you into his, himself with all of your spiritual shabbiness. 
and he sits you at the table next to himself. Man, what a heartbreaking and humbling picture that is. Just think of it like that, right? Imagine it with me like that. Jesus invites you into his house with all of your spiritual shabbiness. Heck, man, even your your physical shabbiness, right? And he says, hey, everybody, look. It's one of my best friends. And she's going to sit next to me. I'm so happy she's here. That's what Jesus did when he called us and he pulled us in. And this leads to our second point that James makes, which is we need to love our neighbors by honoring them as fellow heirs. When you look at verses five or seven, James says something shocking here, actually, which is that God has chosen the lowly and the lesser thens to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And that's kind of like what we talk about sometimes here, which is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. Man, the world just sees different stuff. So does the church. But the world sees different stuff. It sees money. It sees status. It sees influence as the people that are most advantageous to be close to. In fact, we kind of think people that have a little more status and a little more money, we kind of imagine them almost as being a little closer to God at the same time. And that's kind of the trap that these Jewish Christians would have fallen into at that time. But we just do the same thing. But God says, I have chosen those who have nothing to have everything. And when God chooses you to have the everything he has, it's because you came to the conclusion that the everything you had was actually nothing. Now, that's just something to rejoice in when we understand that. We understand the the gravity of that. Remember James told us in verse 9 of the last chapter, he said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, James isn't just hitting on people that have money. Because God blesses people in different ways. He blesses certain people with the gifts, the talents, the skills. um, Or I don't know, the check that comes to them from the estate after mommy and daddy pass to, to have more money. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is thinking that this is what is the measure of my life. This is what is the measure of the richness of my life. And I'm going to judge other people that have a different level and measure of the richness that I'm judging myself to have. James points out in verses 6 and 7 that the people who have the power and the influence, oddly enough, are also the ones who use their power and influence to oppress these brothers and sisters, to sue them in court to blaspheme the name of Christ. So they're giving preferential treatment to people that are making their life very difficult. And obviously James is not saying that everyone who has money, wealth, or status falls into this category. That's not what he's trying to say. But he's pointing out that these people with privilege were also the ones using their power to turn on them when it suited their own needs. Proverbs 14.31 reminds us, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So one of the ways we show honor and generosity to our more needy 
and lesser than neighbors is by honoring them as fellow heirs, by seeing them actually as they truly are, which is, by the way, rich in faith, who have been called to be full recipients of the riches that Christ has for all those who love him, James tells us. In other words, we need to see people how Jesus sees people. We need to have the eyes of Jesus with how we see people and then treat them, right? As sons and daughters who will someday enter into glory, by the way, with equity and inclusion. So when you see those with a lower socioeconomic status with the eyes of Jesus, it allows you to see yourself with the spiritually low status that you actually have. It's so upside down though, isn't it? It's so different because we have a heart that pulses in step and in sync and in beat with the world. We treasure the things that the world treasures. We have a hard time wringing that out of our system. You know what I'm saying? 1 Corinthians 1.26, this is what Paul says. And this is such a, this is such a crazy verse. In fact, I, I, just, I think we should read this verse every day for the rest of the year. I know you're not going to do that, but I'm just laying it out there for you. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. He's talking to the sisters too. Stay with me. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. This is Paul putting the Corinthians in their place. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Tell me how you really feel about me, Apostle Paul. He chose what is foolish. He chose what is weak. He chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God for anything that they own because they are not what they own. We are not what we own. You are not the material provisions that you have. You are not the candidate that you voted for. That is not who you are. You've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, God in the flesh who came to earth in weakness to shame the wise and the foolish, thinking that salvation could come from that kind of ridicule from that kind of humiliating death. That's who you are. How does that hit you when you consider these things? How does it hit you? We love our neighbor by honoring them as fellow heirs. Finally, we love our neighbor with mercy over judgment. Verses 8 through 13. Let me read that again. It says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. But if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's the second time James has talked about that. And then he finishes in 13 and says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So to summarize here, James is saying that if we show partiality, we are not loving our neighbors. Now listen to this. And not loving our neighbors is the equivalent of breaking what we would consider to be God's more important laws, right? If I, if I look at you right now and say, hey, man, you have three sins you can commit. You can commit adultery, you can murder a guy, or just kind of don't love your neighbor very well this week. You're going to be like, oh, man, I'm going to just kind of not love my neighbor. I'm going to go with that one, right? That's generally what most of us would do. James is giving us a different way to think through this. James is like keeping the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself is so serious, he's pointing out, that to not keep it puts you in the same category as those who commit adultery and murder. Different consequences? Sure. Because he says whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James is trying to tell us something about the seriousness and the important nature of loving our neighbor. He's getting to the heart of the human condition here. To commit adultery is committing a physical act against your spouse, right? Committing murders to commit a physical act against another human being. How interesting is it that James reminds us that the sin of partiality of not loving your neighbor is on the same level? He's saying the same heart that commits adultery and murder is the same heart that decides who and who not to love. It's the same heart. You can't get around it. It's a grave warning for us. It's so grave because partiality does two things. Number one, it withholds mercy. To show partiality is to withhold mercy. And who are you to withhold mercy? Who am I to withhold mercy? How is that possible? Especially for people that bear the image and the identity of Christ because of the mercy that was not withheld to them. To put yourself in the place of God, to be a judge, to be the jury, to be the executioner. So it's grave because to show partiality is to withhold mercy. Secondly, it's to use worldly measures. It's being drawn to what the world sees as valuable and esteemed rather than what God esteems, which is humility. Matthew 23, Jesus was talking about the rabbis these religious leaders in verse six, and he says, and they love the place of honor at feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. They love all the things we would love. They love all the things we do love. But this is talking to his disciples. He said, but you're not called, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. 
And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. We don't have time to tease out what that actually is talking about. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, Christ. Then he says this, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see where Jesus kept pressing his disciples is back to understanding who they are and what God has called them to do. James warns us in verse 13 when he says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Jesus actually spoke about this in Matthew 7, 1. He said this, listen, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He said this, he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't even notice the log that is in your own eye? He said this, or, or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in, in my own eye? He said, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And when you remove that log out of your own eye, when it comes time for you to graciously go to your brother who has that speck, man, it's gonna look a lot different in how you approach him and the level of grace and the level of mercy you extend to him in those moments when God has given you the opportunity to speak kindness and maybe calling out a brother or a sister. But to judge another man, which is the withholding of mercy, it's just not to see clearly. Our vision is obscured. It's to not see your own sin as being severe, as severe as the sin you are judging another for. All right, let's make sure that we're clear on something as we're saying this. Jesus is not instructing us to ignore sin. So when we talk about all people being welcomed here at Substance, when we talk about wanting to have the kind of mercy that pulls everybody in, that we want to extend to all people, it doesn't mean that we ignore sin. That would be an abuse of mercy and grace. Paul helps us here in, in Galatians 6 when he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But he doesn't just say restore him, right? He says restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Be aware. Always be aware. Put a mirror in front of your face. Remember who you are. Remember what tempts you. And then he says this. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, Paul says. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Again, don't have time to tease that out, for each will have to bear his own load, Paul says. He's saying, keep watch on yourself. Test your own work as a way to extend mercy over judgment. Because we will always extend mercy to the degree that we know how much we need it and have received it ourselves. So James finishes here at the end of verse 13 with these important words when he says, mercy triumphs 
over judgment. He's saying it's a far greater thing to show mercy, to not give people what you think they deserve based on their status, their socioeconomic place in the community, even their questionable deeds, right? Which can include bad decisions, lack of wisdom, foolish choices. In the end, all those who come to Christ in their humility will have mercy win out and rule over the judgment they deserve. And so when we take in this truth, right, you gotta just ask, how can we not give mercy? How can we make distinctions like that? How can we show partiality the way that we sometimes do and maybe do in a way that we don't even realize? So the question I'm gonna leave you with this morning is this, as a way of application is, who can you show mercy to today? Because we all have somebody. Man, we all got somebody that could use our mercy to win out in their life today over judgment. Man, you might need to begin, and we're going to give ourselves an opportunity for this in a minute. You might need to begin by repenting for those and maybe to those you've withheld that mercy from. And repentance is good because it helps us remember our low estate before the Lord. That's why we have this time of confession during our liturgy, during our, during our songs, because we want to come before the Lord as a low church, as a church that knows their low estate before the Lord. It comes from a, a verse uh, from Psalm 136. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. You can also pray that God would surface these areas in your life where judgment seems to win over mercy. And by the way, if you have any fear and conviction that this may be true, that right there is God having mercy on you right now by revealing it to you. What a grace. Now, mercy is really important right now for the church. Judgment seems to be our natural habitat, especially in a very tension-filled pandemic slash election year, right? When Christians have very different opinions on who should have become the next president. How will you respond? That's the question that lays before you right now in this particular area. On this particular day, how will you respond to your Trump voting brother? How will you respond to your Biden voting sister? James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. James is telling us that the right response is always mercy because it's the response that we received as our very lives depended on it before Christ. So whether your guy won or lost, you need to let something more important win for you. And that's mercy. Because mercy was won for you by Jesus. 
That's still the best news we got this morning. It'll be the best news this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, the rest of the year, 21, 22, however long God gives you life in this world. Mercy was won for you by Jesus. That is the best news for us this morning. Where judgment was deserved, mercy was victorious. There's no greater celebration that we have than the mercy of Christ this morning. There's nothing greater that will unite us. It's one of a few things that is impossible to divide us. I look you in the eye. Hey, Don Snook, right? Hey, Zach Watson. Hey, Dustin Kaufman. I didn't forget his last name. I just paused for a minute there. (laughs) I got to catch my breath. Ethan Crumlick, Josh Wilkerson. What's going on, guys? You got that mercy. You got all that mercy that I needed, and I got too. You want that, that mercy that was one for you was one for me. And dude, we're going to disagree on some things, but here's my mercy. Please, can you show it to me too? Right? There's a better way. And we have it. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning as we celebrate communion is mercy. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the mercy of Jesus through his death for us. I'm going to invite the, the guys up right now, the band. You have, should have your elements on your seat. And as by way of reminder, these elements, which represent the body and blood of Jesus, this is also a sermon. This is your second sermon for the morning. This is a visible sermon to us. This is the gospel in tangible form for us right here. It proclaims to us the great drama of redemption in Christ that we learn from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're partaking in salvation, of our salvation in the present, of our salvation from the past, and salvation in the future. In light of a salvation such as this, the Apostle Paul warns us. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So this is for people that have given their lives to Jesus that have received the forgiveness and the salvation that he offers. And you know what? You can receive that salvation. It's not hard, but it is humbling. We're going to pray here in a minute. And during that time, I'm I'm going to leave space for us to pray and to bring our sins before the Lord. And this could be an opportunity for you for the first time to say, I am so tired of feeling condemned I'm so tired of judging myself and have the world judge me for the sins I've committed that I don't know how to pull myself out from under. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. And that's where a prayer like this comes in for you to say, Lord, I repent of my sins. Would you give me that mercy and forgiveness that I need so that I can experience life eternal starting today with you? That is the message of the gospel. That is available to you. It's available to you. 
So before we partake, let's do that. Let's examine ourselves this morning. Let's recognize the gravity of our sin. Let's recognize the weight of Christ's sacrifice. There's gravity. There's also gladness in it. So let's take a minute and let's pray together now. Lord, we lay our sins before you. Would you surface those things in our hearts now that we need to confess that we have been withholding, that you already know and that you are waiting to give us mercy for? Lord, for those who are weary and heavy laden with their sin, maybe they've been coming here for weeks and months and maybe years and they realize that they have not really experienced your mercy and your grace Lord, we pray Lord that you would draw them to you they would see their need for you that all you require is for us to see our need of you and to repent and confess that need you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from unrighteousness to bring us into the family of God so that we, the neediest of all people now, will be fellow heirs and have all the riches in Christ. God, would you do that work? Would we be able to rejoice in that work when we hear of people coming from death to life? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take off the top of our, of our bread here and we will take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our heart by faith and thanksgiving. Let's eat now. If you want to peel away the air for your cup. We want to drink this now in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and we want to have hearts of thankfulness for him. Let's drink together. Lord, we thank you for this merciful work that we get to be recipients of this morning. We thank you that at the end of the day, all we have is Christ and Christ is all we need. And so God, give us such a sense of your presence, your assurance, your hope, your conviction this morning as we now stand and sing to you with joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.